Our first reading comes from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together, all together in pure, perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We now have a prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, you said... Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And with your gift of the Holy Spirit, let us seek to do just that. May those things that trouble us with ourselves, family, friends, at our place of work, college or school, neighbours, even other car drivers or fellow passengers, may we be at peace with all of them and all of the time. May we be thankful for the tremendous gifts we have. May we seek to love everyone and may we be a good witness as we strive to do this all for your glory. We pray that this peace that we yearn may extend to everyone you love in this world. Despite your wonderful gift of creation that we have received, this planet, the flora, food and new life every day, there are so many problems, poverty, dishonesty, crime and greed. May local, national and world leaders come together in a new and inspired way 
try and alleviate the sufferings in so many places that should be good. May charity, compassion and love, in word and in deed, break through to where it's needed most. Let us as a church, a community, a nation and a commonwealth seek to help those most in need, to lead those who do not know you to make an informed choice and to encourage each other in the love that you showed us through Jesus and in the power of his resurrection from the dead. Father, forgive our shortcomings, our missed opportunities and our complete failures. Encourage each of us to rise up in faith and make a difference. Thank you for helping us just do that. Amen. Our second Bible reading will be from Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for those for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is in Jerusalem a place called the Garden Tomb. This is a picture of it on the screen. It's one of the two sites which are regarded by many people as the possible location of the tomb in which Jesus was laid to rest after his crucifixion. The first site that is uh, regarded by a great number of people is, of course, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a site that was located by Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, in the 4th century AD. And it is held by many to be the authentic site, although it's very difficult to prove. Similarly, the garden tomb may be the authentic site, but again, it's very difficult to prove. But those who regard the garden tomb as the authentic site have two bits of evidence in their favour. The first is that Jesus was crucified near a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And very close to the garden tomb is a cliff which looks from one angle exactly like a human skull. And the other piece of evidence is that near the garden tomb, archaeology has discovered an ancient garden. And we are told in John's Gospel that the place where Jesus was crucified 
there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. Well, again, as I say, we cannot be completely sure or convinced, but I have visited the garden tomb on two occasions, first in 1985 and then again in 1986, and it is a very moving and evocative place, a vivid reminder of the resurrection of Jesus. I have no shame in telling you that just sitting there and looking at it brought tears to my eyes. Now it's good always to have reminders of the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are many powerful reminders just of his resurrection. And today I want us to look particularly at Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 4, which were read to us a few moments ago. And that passage speaks of the implications for us of the resurrection of Jesus, the implications in the past, in the present, and in the future. First of all, then, in the past. The words on screen are the first words in that passage, you have been raised with Christ. Extraordinary words, bold words. What on earth do they mean? When were we raised with Christ? Well, there is there a picture of someone being baptized. And undoubtedly what Paul meant when he said, you have been raised with Christ, is that we were raised with Christ when we were baptized. I remember very clearly the first believer's baptism that I ever witnessed. In the church that I attended in North London with my parents, and uh, I'd never seen a believer's baptism before, even though I was in my mid-teens. It was a baptismal service in the evening. It was indeed very moving, so moving that I knew this must be for me. And the minister made an appeal and said that he would be in his study afterwards and that if anyone did want to be baptized in the future, please go and see him. I couldn't wait to go and talk to him. And he set in motion uh, a series of uh, baptismal classes of instruction. There were, if I remember correctly, six of us in that class, and in due course, we were baptized. Now, it's very interesting that believers' baptism by immersion is a very, very clear picture of death and resurrection. As we are plunged under the water, it's a picture of burial. Not only our burial, but our being buried with Christ. And as we are raised up out of the water, not only are we lifted up, but we are united with Christ in his resurrection. We die to whatever our previous life has been. That's what it's all about. 
and we rise to a new life with Christ. That's what's signified. For baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual experience, namely our conversion, our commitment to Christ, and the fact that we intend to live a new life with his help. Now, this has always been the emphasis in Baptist churches ever since Baptist churches started in this country in the early 1600s, And uh, in more recent years, because of the influence of the ecumenical movement and the fact that churches have been getting together, quite a number of churches that have for centuries practiced only infant baptism have also started practicing believers' baptism as well. And uh, my two granddaughters who attend uh, a Church of England church in Dorking have both been baptized on profession of faith by immersion. And uh, it was, as always, a very moving time when they were baptized. But there is also a very much deeper sense in which we are raised with Christ. And I believe that it's behind that lovely song that we sang earlier in the service, Were You There? We were there because Jesus died as our representative. We were there because he was raised again as our representative. We were there because when we were baptized, we were linked to those two great events. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, that he rose as our representative and the potential of forgiveness and new life becomes ours when we make our commitment to him. You may remember that back in 1929, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. And in a sense, he gave the possibility of lifting up an entire world by that discovery. For from it came a healing agent that has been a blessing not simply to hundreds of people, but thousands and millions of people throughout the world. Now, curiously, there are still people who prefer not to go to their GP and say, I think I may need treatment. And there are still people who prefer not to go to Jesus and say, I need your forgiveness and your new life. And that's very sad. Please don't be one of those. Let your commitment to Christ be made. And if you haven't been baptized, offer yourself for baptism as a sign of that commitment. So when were we raised? We were raised when Jesus was raised. We were raised when we made our commitment to Jesus. We were, ba- we were raised when we were baptized in his name, a sign of that commitment. 
Now the passage goes on to talk about the present. It says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. A few years ago, we were on holiday in France and we wanted to visit the great cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. We drove there in our car and we arrived at the square, the very large square outside the cathedral. And if you've been there, you will know that there are quite a number of lanes of traffic. Unfortunately, we were in the outside lane and in the centre of the square, there is the entrance to an underground car park, which is the correct place to park your car if you want to go and see the cathedral. I'm not quite sure how many circuits I had done signalling left that I wanted to get into the traffic lane by lane and uh, they weren't uh, in, uh, allowing me and uh, it was potentially dangerous. And then, oh no, we saw a policeman step into the road, put his hand up. And I remember saying to the others in the car, we're in trouble now. But he came up to the window of the car. I can't remember whether he spoke in English or French. The uh, French are very good at speaking English. But anyway, he said, where are you trying to go? And I said, well, we want to go into the car park in the center there. Do you know, he put his hand up again. He stopped the entire traffic <laughs> in the square outside the cathedral, pointed at the entrance to the car park. We drove across, I think it might have been even four clear lanes, and into the car park. Now, just as that policeman extracted us from potentially dangerous traffic in the square so that we could concentrate on the magnificent cathedral, so Paul wants to extract us from the potentially dangerous ways of the world so that we can concentrate on attitudes and activities to which the risen Christ calls us. And these are the characteristics of the raised life of a Christian believer. But first of all, Paul lists the negative things, the ways of the world, that he wants us to escape, that he wants us to live the risen life of Christ day by day. Some years ago, I remember hearing somebody say that in the police, when a crime has taken place, they assume that it's been caused by one of just three reasons. Sex, money, power. Oh, that's very interesting. And it seems to me that there are Christian attitudes which cancel out all those three. Marital fidelity generosity, and service. Fidelity instead of sex that's out of control. Generosity against the desire to make more and more money, which is very much the way of the world these days. And service, the answer to the way of the world, which is to get as much power and influence as you can. 
Paul's list is immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. That so very closely ties up with the police idea. And then he lists the ways of Christ, compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, forgiveness of others, love and peace. It's a demanding list, but with the help of the risen Christ within, whose spirit is inside us, we can do it. Then Paul adds a very interesting list at the end of the chapter. To these characteristics of the Christ-centered character, he adds an appeal for Christ-centered worship in verse 16. And he emphasizes the following. Bible teaching. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christian music, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And above all, heartfelt thanks. Gratitude in your hearts to God. And I, as a minister and as a leader of worship, try to bear in mind those three items. Christians live on a new level. It's the level of Jesus himself. And the sort of people we are so we are so much depends on the company we keep. And if we are constantly in the company of Jesus, then that's the best company to keep. You know, I sometimes said Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. Well Paul wouldn't agree with that. What he would say is Those who are the most truly heavenly-minded are actually the most earthly use. We move on to the future. And Paul says, when Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. I've been visited by two Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in the last 12 months. The uh, last time, or I should say four, but always a two and two, and one of them talks and the other one doesn't. But anyway, the most recent visit was on a Saturday morning in January this year. Now, when I uh, suss out that they are obviously Jehovah's Witnesses, I always uh, begin by saying, uh, I think you ought to know that I am a retired Baptist minister. And they always go for what they think is the jugular, straight away. What do you think is the kingdom of God? That is their big teaching. And this time I decided that I would answer in this particular way. I said, the Bible is full of picture language about the kingdom of God. And we have to be very careful what we do with picture language because if we take it literally, it may get us into trouble. Now, I don't know why, but that completely shut him up and he left. But I want to share with you three of the Bible pictures about the kingdom of God and emphasize that they are pictures. The first is that the kingdom is paradise. It's a Persian word and it means a beautiful garden. Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross, 
Today you will be with me in paradise, a beautiful garden. I'm sure that's a picture, a lovely picture. And then there is another picture of a stately home. Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house are many rooms. Now that's got to be a picture as well. It's meant to say there's room for all who want to be followers of Jesus Christ. (laughs) If you think of the average uh, stately home that we visit in this country, that wouldn't be nearly big enough, so it clearly is a picture. And then there is a third picture in Revelation chapter 21, a picture of a, a holy, a beautiful city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There are other pictures, but those, I believe, are the three main ones. Now, having said that they are pictures, I believe that they are meant to indicate that God's future for us is a glorious one. So glorious that it's really beyond words to describe. We've got to describe it in pictures. Another question that I'm sometimes asked about our own future in God's kingdom is this. The Bible seems to have two views about what happens to us when we die. Sometimes it seems to suggest that we go straight to be with Jesus. For example... The the words of Jesus to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Or the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. When he was in prison and thought that he might be executed. He said, I want to stay in this world because there is more evangelism to be done. But he also says, I also desire to depart and be with Christ. So that suggests that. It is straight away when we die. But there are other passages which seem to suggest that we sleep in Christ until his second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there are those who say that's a contradiction and there are people around who love picking out what they say are contradictions in the Bible but I think it's very easy for us to understand that and the explanation I like to give is this. When we go to sleep in the normal way at the end of a day, the first thing we are aware of is when we wake up the following morning. We are not aware of anything that has happened in the intervening, whatever it is, six, seven, eight hours. And I believe that similarly, when we fall asleep in death, the first thing that we will be aware of is that we are in the presence of Christ. When it comes to the future, I have to say that I personally prefer to hold on to those Bible verses which are not picture language. And I want to share with you my favourite three. 
First of all, in Philippians chapter 1, the verse that I've already quoted from Paul, with Christ, which is far better. That's not picture language. That's wonderful. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 So we will be with the Lord forever. That's not picture language either. That's wonderful. My favorite verse of all is the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 because it really implies that the picture language is not going to be enough. Where Paul says, No eye has seen No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So I want to suggest this morning that we don't worry over much about the pictures, that we will just cling on to that, that we will be with the Lord forever.